Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. If you would be, open your Bibles to Luke the 10th chapter. We'll be studying there in just a few moments. Luke the 10th chapter. As we continue our theme uh, for this month and closing out this month of serving responsibly. And we'll think about it perhaps from a little bit different angle than, than what might first meet the mind's eye. Uh, but really, it's a wonderful opportunity for us to serve responsibly. And thinking about serving responsibly, we're thankful for each one of you. So many uh, worked this afternoon, and we are the Sermon Day Projects. Uh, because of the rain, there were several postponements and rescheduling even to next weekend and, and further out. And so other projects will continue now for a few more weeks. And we're thankful for the opportunities that God gives us to serve in his kingdom wherever it is and whatever time that it is. We appreciate Hardison putting together the video again for us. He does such a wonderful job with that. The circuit riders are young men that go around and conduct worship services on Sunday evening or at Belinda City uh, Parkway congregation tonight and we're thankful that they're there and we're thankful that uh, for that congregation we're thankful for the opportunity that they have uh, to be a part of that tonight and if you see those guys be sure and encourage them uh, in the work that they are doing and that that kind of gets us a little bit into the ballpark of of uh, what we're going to be thinking about tonight all of us have had mentors uh, in our life at least if if we are blessed, that is, we have had mentors in our life. Perhaps one of the greatest mentors, in, in a secular speaking sense, one of the greatest mentors that probably have ever been is John Wooden. And most of us know him and even to some degree appreciate him as one of the greatest coaches to ever live. Just a few of the successes as a coach. He's in the Basketball Hall of Fame as a coach. He's also there as a player. He also won 10 as a coach, 10 NCAA championships, seven consecutive championships, 88 straight wins between 71 and 74. But yet any of the guys that played for him, they would come out of high school hoping that they could play for him because they wanted to win national championships. But as they stayed there, and then especially as they graduated, they realized that the greatness of being able to play on his teams was not just to claim a championship, but it was to have a mentor for life, if in a sense that's what you chose to have in relationship with him. You know, Bill Walton was... was uh, the All-American Center that was the star uh, on the team at one particular time during their winning streaks. And uh, his senior year, he felt like he'd earned the right as being a, an All-American. And even though Coach was very strict about no facial hair in a time when facial hair was pretty popular. And uh, so he came in his senior year after being away for the summer. And he stopped by Coach's office and he has a nice full beard. And, and he says to him, he says, Coach... I know what your rule is, but I just want you to know, I feel like as a senior and All-American, I deserve the right this year to go ahead and wear my beard. And I just wanted you to know that before I come to practice this afternoon. And he stood up and he shook his hand and he said, Bill, you know I admire a man that has convictions and stands by them. And I want you to know we're going to miss you this year in basketball. <laughs> Bill went back that afternoon and he made himself clean shaven and uh, he showed up for basketball practice right on time, clean face and all. But you know, for over 30 years, he and coach talked with each other by phone once a week 
for over 30 years. When there would be basketball reunions that would take place usually annually, players from all the decades would come in. He would call them by name. He would turn to their wife and call them by name. And then he would look to their children and call them by name. He invested his life into men that played ball with him years after they had left the court. I'm asking you tonight, can you name a better act of service than investing in someone's life? Not as just an afternoon project, not as just a six-week dedication, but are there people in your life that you have invested in and you're willing to sacrifice and you're willing to make continual contact? When we look at the dictionary, the word mentor has to do with advice and with training, at least in this particular definition. That's a little bitty on the screen. And, and you know, when I, when I read that, I didn't like it at all. And, and, and I was going to delete it. And I thought, well, let's, let's start with that tonight. The reason I didn't like it is because I think it oversimplifies it. I think if you could just tiptoe in the most shallow waters of talking about mentorship, this would be the very most shallow waters. The idea that you're just going to give advice, the idea that you're just going to train, that's really not the heart of mentoring. The heart of mentoring is when that advice and that training is literally a walking into the deep waters in life with the individual. It becomes a walking through life with the individual. And so on this next slide, I decided to just put a few uh, mental images, if you will, in your mind of, of just a few things that might be a little bit deeper in, in appreciation for mentoring. Mentoring, in a sense, is having someone that's walked that path before and because of their years and because of their success and what they do, they, if they choose to be a mentor, they are willing to reach down and help somebody that's just getting started. They're willing to help somebody that maybe hasn't walked as long or they're not as skilled in whatever the position is and they're willing to help that person up. It's not a pride and an arrogance, kind of like some things we talked about this morning of renovating the mind. It's not a pride and an arrogance of, hey, look at me and I think so highly of me, but it's valuing the kingdom. Pause here for just a moment and if you've never thought about this way, think about this. The Lord's kingdom should not have to start over every generation. We ought to be able to stand on the shoulders of the generation before us because they've invested in us and because we've been humble enough to learn from them. And the next generation ought to be able to stand on our shoulders and have that much head start. The kingdom ought to be more powerful and more effective every generation because the present generation reaches back and helps the other up. But then also we realize that we're not gonna live forever. And so even though we may be very active at this point and we may love the ministries that we're a part of or the role that God gives us to play in life, there will come a day that the baton is passed. And the question is, will you have prepared somebody to pass that baton to? Have you ever stopped and thought about the fact that Moses invested in the life of Joshua for 40 years? Go back and read and, and, and I mean, it's clear. He invested in him for 40 years and then when Moses died, what was the very next step? God came down and told Joshua, Moses is dead. 
And then the first chapter of Moses is God preparing Joshua to take on that leadership role. Remember, that's the chapter where three times he told him to be strong and courageous and do not be afraid. You know one reason why he was capable of doing that was because he had someone, a mentor, to invest in his life for four decades before that time. And then the third image there is that, that word coaching. Is it interesting to you that the greatest basketball players on earth have coaches? The greatest football players on earth have coaches. The greatest baseball players on earth, the greatest hitters still have pitching coach, uh, uh, batting coaches. The greatest pitchers still have pitching coaches. What should that tell us? There is a wisdom to realizing that no matter how long we've walked a trek, that we can benefit from having someone in our life that loves us, and is willing to continually invest in us. And that's what a mentor can do. So tonight we're thinking about a spiritual mentor. We're thinking about what could you be to someone else? How could you reach back? Or we're also thinking about as one that perhaps is younger. Are you willing to reach up? Are you going to be a know-it-all? Are you going to realize that there's a lot that you can learn and there's a lot that you can benefit if, if you're willing to put a hand up? When we think about Paul, if you know his story, just let me mention two names to you, Barnabas and Timothy. The greatest missionary, arguably, the greatest missionary that's ever lived had a Barnabas and he had a Timothy. It doesn't matter how great you are, there ought to be somebody that you're looking up to that will hold you accountable, that will nurse you along and that will challenge you along and that will pull you along and yet you also ought to have others that you're reaching back to and you're encouraging and you're nurturing and you're pulling along also. Why? Because the kingdom is worth it. It's that simple. We're a part of something that's so much more important than any of us individually and we owe it to the kingdom. We owe it to the work of the Lord to invest in each other, serve responsibly by investing in one another. Let me give you this quick illustration. You heard this back a few years ago. We did a six part series back a few years ago and a part of the idea came out of the book, Disciple Making Church. And in that we asked six questions. And let me see if off the top of my head I can give them to you. Then you might remember the series. Who is your Lord? Who are you? Who is your Barnabas? Who is your Timothy? Who is your Antioch? Who is your Macedonia? All six of those questions had to do with how you and I can grow spiritually. The reason I bring that up tonight is because McDonald, in writing that book, he really challenged me as a reader of that book by saying, when people ask us, how's your church doing? How are you doing spiritually? Sometimes as we answer that as it relates to a church, we go to what he calls the ABC answers. And we say, oh, as a church, we're doing good. Our attendance is really up. Oh, as a church, we're doing good. Our building is, is being renovated or, or we're adding on to our building. Or, oh, we're doing really good. Our contribution, it is, it is really being met and we're surpassing it. A, B, C, attendance, building, contribution. And he says, now, what if we could talk to God? And, and we could say, God, 
When you look down at a congregation, how do you evaluate a congregation? In other words, is that what the Lord would say? Would the Lord look down and say, oh, your attendance is up and your building is being used effectively and your contribution is meeting the budget. You guys are doing great. And it's not that attendance is not important. Hebrews 10, 25, it's not that the building is not an important tool and it's not that giving is not important. We're not saying that those things aren't important. Here, I just believe that's way too specific. I believe that if the Lord was talking to us about how we're doing as a congregation, I believe somewhere in there he would talk about whether or not people are growing individually. Are we growing as disciples? And are we a church that is capable of reproducing disciples? And when a disciple is young here, are we a congregation that... that are capable, are fulfilling the capabilities that we have to, to lead disciples into maturation. In other words, how well are we doing of growing people so that every day of their life they're growing closer to the Lord? Now listen, I know that's not easy for you and I to, to evaluate and, and to judge, but I'm saying to you tonight, we need to grasp or at least wrestle with this reality. That that's what it comes down to. The great commission is what? Go therefore and what? Make disciples. Mentoring, ultimately, spiritual mentoring, ultimately can only be about one thing. Making disciples that are capable of making disciples. And so if a woman here wants to reach back and mentor a young woman who has her first baby, helping her as a mentor in her life, what should the mentor's greatest concern be? The soul of the mother. Is she growing as a disciple? And how can she best raise a child to grow into a disciple of Jesus? Now, can there be a lot of other ways she can help along the way? Absolutely, but that is the ultimate picture. It always is going to come back to discipleship. As we consider spiritual mentoring, I'd like you to look with me at Luke the 10th chapter. And I know that if you have been paying attention, you know that between myself uh, with a sermon uh, of several weeks ago and then Philip last week and now here we are again, uh, we're using this passage a lot. I like this passage because in one sense, it's not usually our first passage that comes to mind when we study mentoring. A lot of the time, you know, as preachers and teachers, when we, we go to study mentoring, we, it's almost like we can't help ourselves. We jump right to Paul because it's such a perfect example in scripture. He had a mentor in Barnabas and then he mentored Timothy. But, but uh, let's go a little bit different angle tonight and let's go back to that passage in Luke the 10th chapter and, and, uh, and give some application, if you will, out of that text, hopefully dealing fairly with that text. But if you will, in the sense of stretching it, especially to apply to mentoring. And this is a text where the Lord sends out 
the 70, or depending on the translation you're reading, it could be 72. And he sends them out on that short-term missionary journey. And let's just read the first couple of verses here, and we'll talk about it and then uh, make some brief points as, as we try to see some lessons on mentoring here. Luke 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, just to remind you what this passage is, I show you this map. And, and it's, if you uh, just look there to the east on this map, you see that just across the river in an area that he, uh, Luke, is the only gospel that records the six months of Jesus spending time at the very end of his earthly ministry in Perea. It's interesting that this is the beginning of that six months. He's going to spend uh, a, a few months out in that area, and then when he comes back to Jerusalem, he's coming back to Jerusalem to die. Most of the rest of the public ministry that we read about in the life of Jesus, we read stories about him in Judah, Judea. We read stories about him in Samaria. We read, of course, stories about him in Galilee where he grew up. But here is this one excerpt where he goes to what oftentimes scholars say is the forgotten group, except Jesus doesn't forget them. And, and so he crosses over the river and he goes out to this group. But before he goes out, he knows that he is on a limited time. And so he knows that he's wanting to go to city to city, but he takes these 70 and he prepares them, as we just read there in verse 1 and 2, he sends them ahead, almost like a forerunner, like John the Baptist, almost like a forerunner to say, and, and, and we mentioned this several weeks ago. The word city is used over and over and over here. It's almost as if Jesus was saying, this is not the time to settle in and talk to one person for a long time. It's almost as if he's saying, I want you to go in the city and I want you to publicize the fact that the kingdom is at hand and get them ready. I'm going to be coming through their city. And then you go to the next city and you get them ready that I'm coming in into that city. And, and so... Here we see this mission of Jesus preparing the 70 or the 72 for this mission. But don't you think there was a lot more going on than just him using them to prepare Perea? I think what Jesus was also doing was he was taking this opportunity to prepare them. Because he gives them some very challenging teachings. Now, we don't have this on the screen, but if, if you look, remember, he told them things like, if you, and we're still in Luke 10. Notice he told them he's going to send them out like lambs among wolves in verse 3. And then in verse 4, he told them, carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. Why would he do that? That wasn't for that area. That was for them. Some of the things, many of the things that he, were do, that he was doing here, he was doing it to test them and to prepare them. Can you really trust me? Can you really believe that God will take care of you? I'm going to send you on a mission trip, and since I'm the one sending you, I'm going to send you without provisions, and you're just going to have to trust that you'll be taken care of. You see, that was a man helping grow 70 other people along the way. 
So what are four or five things that we can list here that mentors ought to always do for those that they're trying to grow along the way? Number one, I would suggest to you that mentoring is all about being intentional. When we look down this passage, Jesus was very intentional in everything that he was doing. He made it clear exactly how many he was picking out. He made it clear that he was going to send them out two by two. He made it clear that you're going to begin with prayer. You're going to pray to the Lord of harvest to send out laborers for the harvest. He made it clear about what they were to do when they arrived there. Uh, if you skip down to verse 9, notice they were to heal the sick. And they were also to say, the kingdom of God has come near to you. He made it clear that this is going to be a city mission. You're not going to go out into the countrysides on this one. In other words, everything he did in selecting them, and I'm overlapping with another one that's coming up in just a minute, so we'll make that one briefer. But everything was very intentional. What's the application for mentors? There will be a lot of people in our lifetime that our paths will cross and we may not see each other very long and we may make an impact on each other and that's great, but that's not mentoring. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying that's not mentoring. Mentoring is when we're intentional. When we intentionally invest in individuals and we go back on a regular basis and we stay in touch to see what we can do to help them. That's why I'm in mentoring. We can't mentor large volumes of people. There's usually only a handful that we can truly mentor. But if everybody does their part, we see how powerful it can be. Second, I'd like for you to see that mentors are realistic. What do we mean by this? Jesus knew he only had six months left and he was going back to Jerusalem at Passover to die. He knew that there were cities, many cities to be reached. He knew as one man on this earth, he was limited in what he could do. He also knew that he was limited in the time that he had. And so he used these 70 to his advantage. He used them to multiply the workload, but then he also used them to his advantage because he knew that he had a limited time to be on this earth. Now, for just a moment, step out of, if you are, like most of us would be at this moment, in a mindset about you individually, and just a moment, step out of yourself and look down at life, but look at life on a timeline, and now don't just look at your life, look at the kingdom. And you see what happened? Before you were born, the kingdom existed on this earth, and if you die anytime soon, but yet the Lord doesn't come back again, the kingdom continues to go. And so when you look down on a timeline, stepping out of yourself, what do you see about your life? Please soberly listen to this. What you see about your life is you see this timeline of the kingdom and you have a place of beginning and you have a place of ending of your life on this earth in the kingdom. You only have a certain amount of time to impact the kingdom. And because you're one person, you're limited in the scope of what you can do. If we truly love the Lord and his work and we believe that there's a world out there that needs to be touched by the kingdom, reality, they're realistic, reality says we need to multiply ourselves. 
And that's what mentoring is all about. I would consider myself having failed if I left this earth and had not, as a minister and as a preacher, invested in younger men, encouraging them in every way that I can to grow in to effective preachers. If you're an elder, if you're a deacon, if you're a Bible class teacher, you're missing the vision of the kingdom if you do not see the necessity of replacing yourself. You're not being realistic with the limitations in your life. If you are a godly husband or wife, what could you do to encourage the next generation to be godly husbands or wives? If you're a godly father or mother, what could you do to encourage the next generation to be godly mothers and fathers? If there's particular ministries that you love and, and that you, you are very active in, what could you do to invest in the next generation so that that ministry will do better than it's ever done when your life is over here, not that it would stumble and fall when your life is over here because you never gave thought to how the kingdom would be impacted if you were no longer on this earth. Be realistic. Third, I'd like for you to see that mentors are concise. We've already mentioned several things. I'll just mention it to you quickly. He sent them out by two in verse one. He told them exactly what to pray in verse two. He told them about the danger that they were going out in verse three. He told them what they couldn't carry in verse four. He continually told them he was sending them to cities. And in verse nine, he told them he wanted them to heal the sick. And also in verse nine, he told them what he wanted them to preach, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. It's pretty concise, isn't it? You know, he, he didn't gather them together and say, I tell you what, I, I think we're going to do some mission work and I, we're going to go to Samaria. No, we're going to go to, no. Um, I tell you, let's go to Perea. No. As a mentor, he knew what the mission was and he was very concise about how it was going to be handled. Why? Is it fair to say this? Because he had been doing public ministry for several years now. He knew how it should be done and he knew the effective way to do it. What's the point? Do you realize that you, living a faithful Christian life for many years, there are so many things that you can say concisely because you've lived it. You know what works and you know what doesn't work. You know what is righteous and you know what's not righteous. You know what exemplifies agape love and you know what doesn't. Do you realize when, when you're trying to reach and, and help someone that's younger, do you realize how concise you can be? You know, just the other day, I was invited to go to speak to a group of preachers. Now, can, can you get much more concise than this? For 30 minutes, I was to speak to a group of preachers about nonverbal communication that takes place while you're preaching. Now, some of you that are not public speakers, you would probably say, does that really happen? 
And others of you that maybe have spoken a little bit say, I, I know what you're talking about, but can you really talk about that for 30 minutes? I'm a preacher. I can talk about it. No. But, but <laughs> you know, you, you look at it and, and, you know, just to make a point, that's my career. And so even though somebody else that maybe you've never done very much speaking, you probably think, I could never speak about nonverbal communication for 30 minutes. Well, the things that you're an expert in, that you do really well, you've done it for a long time, I couldn't talk about it for 30 minutes. You see, that's the beauty of mentorship. There are things that you can be very concise in. There are things that the rest of us haven't even thought about existed. We don't even know the tidbits of wisdom that, that is in it because that's not something we do. That's not something we're good at. But you are. Now the question is, have you and are you reaching back and helping someone else with that concise wisdom that you have that you might be able to give them several years of a head start because you have that to share with them? Fourth, I'd like you to see the motivation. You see there the prayer in verse 2? It was all about the harvest. This mission trip wasn't about, look at the site you're going to This mission trip wasn't, the, the very core of it wasn't, hey, you're going to be with a lot of good people and you're going to enjoy it, although there was probably some truth to that. The motivation of this was there are individuals out there that are lost. That's the potential harvest. There's a Lord of harvest that that's what he cares about. Pray to him that he would send out laborers that would be laboring to make the harvest to be a part of the harvest. And so I remind you of that point that we made a while ago. There's a lot of ways in the church that mentoring needs to be done, whether it's parent mentoring or marriage mentoring or elders mentoring young, younger men to be future elders or even deacons mentoring younger men to be future deacons or, or Bible class teachers. She's mentoring a younger woman to be a Bible class. We could go on and on, but I just want you to see this. If we're talking about spiritual mentoring, ultimately it's about the kingdom. And it's about helping the harvest. What can you do to grow that soul so that they can do their ministry even greater to reach more souls? But then last, I'd like for you to see, mentors help those that they're mentoring be grounded. I want us to close this lesson, and, but you're going to have to open your Bible to Luke 10 for this when that passage we're working in. We don't have a slide for this, but I want you to see what happened when they came in. These 70 came in on their missionary journey. And notice what was said in verse 17. Then the 70 returned, this Luke 10 and 17, the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus answers in 18 and 19, but notice what he says as he corrects them in 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. I'm tempted to say, see that subtle way? Maybe it's not so subtle, but do you see that way that he grounded them right there? They had had a very successful outing. 
They had gone out and apparently from the little bit we have revealed when they came back, they did what Jesus taught them to do. He told them to go to the cities, he told them to heal, he tells them to tell them that the kingdom's coming. And, and so in a sense, they've come home and it's success. And so they're fired up. But you know what they're really fired up about? The demons were submissive to us. We ordered demons in your name, Jesus, and they obeyed us. And for whatever reason, that fired them up. And notice their mentor takes the truth. Yeah, you, you did do that. But he puts it in perspective. But now let me tell you, if that's what you're coming back rejoicing in, see, he takes them back to harvest. Let me tell you what you ought to really be rejoicing in. That your names are written in the book of life. And then that would be the reminder and you're helping other people get their names written in the book of life. Sometime we lose our faith and we kind of fall apart in the valleys in life. But sometime we lose our faith and we fall apart in the successes in life the mountaintops they come home with success and their mentor is there to kind of ground them say I see what you're saying but let me tell you how you ought to be thinking I know some in this room are probably old enough to say you know I, I don't really have a mentor in my life that's a lot older than me right now but I want to ask you do you have someone that's a good enough friend that will be honest with you? That will help you be grounded? And if you are a generation back in life and you're in this room and, and you say, you know, I don't really have a mentor in my life, is it because you haven't been humble enough to accept that nurturing? Are you willing to accept it when someone a little older than you is trying to ground you? And you're all excited about one thing and they say, but you need to remember this. Well, he, he doesn't, she doesn't know what she's talking. She's just jealous. He's just jealous. Now, maybe they're not jealous. Maybe God's put them in your life to ground you and maybe you're not in a position of humility to accept it. I want to encourage you tonight. The way God's designed relationships we need mentors and we need to be mentoring. We need people investing in us and we need to invest in others. I know that Philip and Doug Perry are exploring the idea right now of how to develop a stronger capability of mentoring the young people. That excites me. That's something that all of us ought to say, we as a congregation want to do that better. Tonight, let's be humble, let's be prayerful, and let's be what God wants us to be. Let's see others, and let's allow others to see us and help each other. Tonight, we're about to sing a song of encouragement. There's not anybody here perfect. Not anywhere close. But we can all leave here tonight forgiven. By the grace and the mercy of God, because of his love, we can be forgiven.
And so tonight, if there's sin separating you from God and you're ready to have that sin washed away, we would love to assist you in being baptized into Christ. Maybe you've been baptized into Christ and along the way sin has separated you from God again. And you want to repent of that and confess that and pray forgiveness. We'd be honored to pray with you. But let's leave here tonight being responsible with our very life and with our soul. Not only for our sake, but for the influence of the kingdom's sake.